This morning we're going to be in Mark 11. I'd encourage you to grab your Bible and, and turn there, scroll there, whatever you need to do to get there. If you don't have one, there's one in the seat, or should be one at least close by in a seat, under a seat in front of you. And Mark 11 is where we're going to be spending, uh, trying to, uh, pray for me that I stay on task as we s- dig through this whole chapter this morning. And uh, as we do that, I mean, I'm excited, excited to do that. It's such a, a key point in Mark's gospel where this, uh, we, we see things start to really uh, happen in a new way. If, you, if you've read biographies, historical uh, biographies of different figures throughout history, one of the common threads of those, those stories is that the author, the biographer, doesn't spend equal time looking at every, every season of a person's life. Uh, for example, if you were to, to, to read a biography about Winston Churchill, it wouldn't spend so much time, likely, spend so much time on his childhood or, or younger years, but really focus on that, that era during World War II when, he was, when his leadership was so important to what was happening uh, over uh, in, in, the, in the European area. And if you were to read the biography of, of Neil Armstrong, you know, you'd spend a lot of time talking about one small step and one giant leap and everything that happened around that. So, so we, we don't look at every season of life the same. We focus in on things, and Mark is doing that. Mark's gospel contains 16 chapters. 16 chapters to narrate the, the whole of Jesus' life on this earth, and, and really focusing in on the three or so years of, of ministry, active ministry in which Jesus was engaged. 16 chapters, and the last six of those focus on the span of one week's time in Jesus' life. If you're into numbers, I like them, so bear with me now. If you don't like numbers, I'm sorry. There are 662 verses in Mark, and 239 of them cover this last week of Jesus' journey to the cross. That's, that's 36% of this gospel covering a span of 0.06% of Jesus' earthly life. Do you know what that means? That means this is important. That means that Mark wants us to lean in and hear because he's about to explain. This is the key event in the life of Jesus Christ. We've been talking about how, how Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, is focused on his mission. And through Mark's gospel, about the halfway point, we saw him make this turn Jesus is now going to Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. That's his mission for us. And in Mark 11, he's reached Jerusalem. That's where we see him now and throughout now the rest of the gospel. So so in this chapter, we're actually going to see the beginning of this last week of Jesus' life. He's making three separate entrances into Jerusalem on three consecutive days. And, and that's what we're going to look at together. So you can open your outline and follow along. As you're doing that, I would suggest as we're going into this that we are seeing Jesus come into Jerusalem as a different kind of king. That is who he is. He is coming in as a different kind of king. And, and as such, the salvation that Jesus brings does not conform to man's ideals or expectations. And we're going to see why as we look through this text. So beginning in verse 1, if you're following again in your outline, this is the, the first point, Jesus' first entrance into Jerusalem, coming with, with a joyful celebration. I'm going to 
go ahead and read this passage for us. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no, other has, uh, no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You see here in a moment a map of the city of Jerusalem because hopefully this will help us a little bit understand Jesus' entrance into the city. Uh, you see to the east, to the right as you're looking at it, uh, the city is outlined on the left. You can see the temple, uh, outlined the temple complex there on the eastern edge of the city. And then beyond that, the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley follows that. And, and the, the road that they would have been ascending would have come around the southern edge of the Mount of Olives and, and then up to the Temple Mount of Jerusalem. Bethany, you can see off to the right. It's not on the map, but you can see the direction they were coming from. Uh, we don't know where Bethphage was. There are different theories, but that's why there's a question mark there. It was in that region, and, and we don't need to know for, for, for understanding this text this morning. But this helps us understand, this is the journey that they're making, this final journey. Bethany is about two miles to, to the gates of Jerusalem. And that's the ascension that, that they're making to, to the temple. They would have likely stayed in Bethany with uh, Jesus' friend, friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Uh, that would have probably been their home, where they would have, or not their, their, their place of lodging in, in the evenings when they were going out from the city. And uh, so they were making this, this journey, and as they're going, we're told Jesus sends two of the disciples. Uh, remember, Jesus sends the disciples in pairs. We see him do that often. It's for a reason. And he sends them into one of those villages, we're not told which one, to obtain a donkey's colt. And now, before we go on, I, I want something to be clear to us as we read this. I think it's very important, as best we can, that we read this through the lens of the Old Testament. So, so if you can, put those, those eyes on and, and, and see where, uh, where, where, not just in this chapter, but throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, uh, those references from the, from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Old Testament, are coming into play. Because uh, Jesus has come to fulfill those scriptures. And we're going to see that fulfillment taking place. Mark is, as he sometimes can be, characteristically fuzzy on some of the details. And that may frustrate you. It may frustrate me as I try to understand what's happening and explain it. Because these two unnamed disciples go into an unnamed village and mention to some unnamed observers that the Lord has need of the colt and will send it back here immediately. And without any seemingly further questions, they let him take it. And so there's all kinds of theories about who these people were and, and Jesus' possible relationship with the owner of the cult and was the owner of the cult with Jesus? Did he know the people ahead of time? And we can wonder, and he may have. But what's important for us to know 
what we do know from this text is that this is the Lord Jesus preparing for his entrance into Jerusalem, and as he's doing that, he's ordaining precisely what is needed for him to accomplish his mission. As the sovereign Lord, God in the flesh, nothing is going to derail him from that. So however it was arranged, Jesus has what he needs to enter Jerusalem as the coming king. And so now he and his disciples make their their final approach into the city, and I'd encourage us to use our our imaginations to enter into this this scene as we see the crowds around him swelling, because this this is the Passover. And so Jews from all over are journeying back to Jerusalem as they do every year for the Passover celebration. And they're all coming. The roads are probably thick with, with people making this, this journey. And Jesus is in their midst with his disciples. And it's, I, I'm certain, a buzz because if you remember, Jesus, it seemed, couldn't go anywhere without crowds going there even ahead of him because they were talking about him. They were seeing what he was doing. And the word about him continued to spread. So people would have been talking and saying, that's, that's him. There he is. What's he going to do? And whether they, they realized really who Jesus was or not, as Jesus is making this, this ascent, they, you can imagine they come around and they're, they're looking up to the temple as they're ascending the hill and the crowds are excited because this is it. This is the end of their journey. Have you ever been on a journey like that? Not walking necessarily, but, but maybe driving and you see your destination and, and you just get excited. This is where they are and, and, and the praise, the excitement is overflowing. And in the midst of that, Jesus is fulfilling uh, Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. And the people were fulfilling their part with, with this loud rejoicing, this, this, this celebration. Of course, this sort of thing happened every year as, as faithful Jews made the, the journey up to Jerusalem. They would have recited the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118, filled with, with joy and with passion and excitement and anticipation. And we're not told who the many are in this passage, but they're, they're coming from, from in the midst of the crowds and, and they're throwing coats on the road and in a way that, that, that is, is a little bit of a, a shadow of what happened in the Old Testament when King Jehu was, 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 was anointed as king and, and his subjects put coats before him as he came through. And, and, and they're, they're putting branches on the road and they're, they're just, the, the, the excitement is infectious. And as we've seen throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is constantly being misunderstood. What's going through the, the heads, the minds of the crowds? Because the salvation that Jesus is bringing doesn't conform to man's ideals or expectations. And yet the irony is that Jesus is still being pro- proclaimed, praised, exalted as the king that he truly is. They're proclaiming these words from Psalm 118, again, one of those Hillel Psalms. They would have recited this every year as they ascended to Jerusalem, and they now find their perfect fulfillment in this man on a donkey in their midst. Baruch Habah Mashiach Adonai. Excuse me, I did it right both other times. 
My Hebrew is failing me. I practice this a lot. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they would have said it with much more enthusiasm. Because this is what they were anticipating. Hosanna. Psalm 118, 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. And then verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of it being fulfilled right now before their eyes. This is, this is a joyful celebration. And yet, I would argue that they don't quite know what they're proclaiming. And part of why I draw that conclusion is because the same thing happens so easily to us. We, we as, as they do, we repeat things, we repeat words. Uh, they, they repeated these, these psalms, these praises, every year. And over time, I imagine that the, the, the true meaning of that was starting to slip away. Hosanna perhaps becomes more of a, just a proclamation of praise, as we often use it. Perhaps you, you've used the phrase, praise the Lord, in response to something good that you've heard happen. There's nothing wrong with that. But what is that? What is that? Praise the Lord. It's, it's like I'm getting down and, and grabbing you by the shirt and saying, praise the Lord. Do you know who he is? You should praise him. It's a, it's a command. It's an exhortation. Yet yeah, we, we use it as in a different way. And in the same sense, Hosanna has become that. They're, Hosanna, we're all making this journey to Jerusalem as we do every year. Hosanna, praise God. No, God, save us now. It's a plea. And for many of these Jews, they were proclaiming those words without realizing that the king, the blessed one, the one who was coming to save was actually there in their midst. To the rest of the crowds, yes, there was something unique and, and, and mystifying even about this particular Jewish teacher, rabbi. But at the same time, he was just another man on the same pilgrimage they were all taking, caught up in this, this celebration with them. And to confirm that, I think we look at the last part of this little section. Verse 11, it says that they entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And, and when Jesus had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The other gospel writers in, the, in their accounts talk about how the word of Jesus was, was spreading. They were, they were all talking about him. Mark focuses a little differently. He cuts a, a different profile of the Messiah here. He, he, at the end of the day, we see Jesus just with the twelve. Where are all these, these joyful celebrants? It's amazing how fast that the crowds seem to have dissipated around Jesus. And it's just he and his loyal followers. As is so often the case in Mark's gospel, the crowds don't really seem to understand. They miss the reality of who the king actually is. Uh, but I want us to pause and consider the king before we, we move on. Uh, he's our king, you know. So how does Jesus demonstrate his status as a better king. What could Jesus have done differently in the, in the midst of those crowds? Or, or how could he have fed off of this, this fanatical praise? He could have. He could have totally taken a different approach as he, as he fed off that, that zeal, that passion of the people. But that's not what Jesus came for. 
Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came with a mission much bigger than an overthrow of the Roman government. Jesus came to overthrow sin, death, and the power of hell once and for all. And so he kept his focus on his mission and in so doing proved himself the better king. That's the king that we worship. That's the king who comes in the name of the Lord to save us. Is, is that the king that you worship? Is that the king who you worship? I hope it is. I pray it is. Jesus' first day in Jerusalem ended on this, this muted note. He and the 12 left the city, but it wasn't before he'd taken in the scene in the temple. It says he looked, looked at everything, Mark says. What did he see? The verses to follow are going to shed some light on that. So now turn uh, to your attention to the next day, beginning in verse 12. Jesus' second entrance into Jerusalem, and in it we see him bringing a sobering condemnation. On the following day, verse 12, when they had came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were, looking, uh, were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Now the second day, uh, Monday by our estimation, ends with their departure from the city again. And we saw it there, but, but for us to really understand what Jesus is, is doing here, we gotta sneak a peek to the, to the next day, okay? So we're gonna just peek into verse 20 and we see Jesus returning to the fig tree. The fig tree that started this, this, this account right here in verse 12. And that's gonna tell us something. This, this was in the midst of this this thing with the fig tree that Jesus goes to the temple and we're going to see why that happens the way it does. Jesus is, is using a prophetic device, something called a, an enacted, a living parable. And we're going to go ahead and see how that teaches us. As I read this, it's actually interesting Beginning in verse 12, one of the first questions I have to ask is, why was Jesus hungry? Perhaps you ask that too. Do you ask your Bible questions? As you're reading it and you come to something that, wait a minute, why is that there? On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Okay, why was he hungry? Why, why, wait a minute, Jesus just stayed in Bethany with Likely, again, Lazarus and, and Mary and Martha, who are known to, to cook because that was a problem back when, a different point when they, they were working and, and uh, oh man, one of them, Mary or Martha, was busy making food. I can't remember. 
Martha was cooking, thank you. Whew. So they, they did that. We know that they did. They should have fed Jesus breakfast. Why didn't they give Jesus breakfast? He's hungry now. He barely walked two miles to Jerusalem. He's already hungry. What about the disciples? Okay, so these are the questions that I ask, and I, and I hope that you now are asking the same thing. Because I want us to be reminded that the Son of God doesn't bring things to happen by accident. I don't think that Jesus forgot to eat that morning and then suddenly realized it on the road to Jerusalem. Oh, what was I thinking? Everybody else ate, I just missed it. No, no, this was part of his plan. Jesus had a lesson to teach. And then he was gonna teach it to his disciples and then to the rest of the crowds who'd be observing and, and participating in what would happen that day. And so not only can we let Jesus off the hook for being hungry when he should have been more prepared, we can also think differently about Mark's comment that it was not the season for ripe figs, because that's the next place I go. Wait a minute. Why was Jesus looking for figs if it wasn't fig season? Because his hunger was getting the best of him, of course. He wasn't thinking rationally anymore. No, that's not the case. What does he see? This is, remember, this is, this is Jesus, the Son of God, who at the dawn of creation spoke fig trees into existence. So right now, Jesus is not being outsmarted by his creation. He sees a fig tree from a distance, covered in leaves, they all see it. And, and so naturally, this time of year, there would be fig buds on the tree. They'd start budding, and, and I've read, I've not experienced this, but that those are edible. And for somebody who was truly in need of nourishment, really hungry, they could choke those down and get some sustenance. But what does Jesus see when they approach the tree? Nothing. It says there was nothing on the tree. Nothing but leaves. And so Jesus, as he's cursing the tree, he's really affirming what's already true of it, isn't he? It's not bearing any fruit. And, and with that then, we turn our attention to the temple. This is the temple that, remember, Jesus had looked around at the night before but done nothing about, and now he's going to take action. If you're familiar with this account, you've probably heard it referred to as the, the cleansing of the temple. And I think this is somewhat misleading because Jesus has no intention of merely cleansing the temple as though to, to remind people of what its proper function should be. He has, he has bigger plans for the temple, and those are going to become much more clear over the, the course of the next few days. But for now, he is passionately opposed to the ways in which the temple courts have become a place for religious leaders to hawk their wares and fail to lead people to the glories of God. Brenda, if you could pull up that slide. This is a model of Jerusalem in Jesus' day, not really Jerusalem. They did not have drones back in the first century. 
And this is what it would have looked like, and this is looking at it from the east, from the Mount of Olives, and that big rectangular object in the middle is the Temple Mount, uh, the Temple Complex. In the midst of that, a smaller little, little area is the Temple itself, and around that, that big open area, the Temple Courts, the Court of the Gentiles, the colonnades around that. This was the place, the court of the Gentiles, where, where people of all nations could come to be part of the worship of the one true God. And their ability to do that had been stifled. That's what Jesus was opposing as he went through the temple court. This was about more than, than price gouging or, or con work. This was a, a time in which Jesus, did you see this? He was targeting both the buyers and the sellers equally. Why? Because they were all missing the mission of God. What's Mark been consistently trying to show us? The difference between those who are, are spiritually blind and those who see. That was the crux of Jesus' teaching in his words. We, we're not told all of what Jesus was teaching here, but, but it says that he was teaching them, and then he quoted from two specific passages, one in Isaiah and one in Jeremiah. The first, uh, Isaiah 56, says uh, that this is where God desires... Uh, to bring many to his holy mountain, to offer sincere worship to him. The design was that people would come because his house was one of prayer for all peoples. But that wasn't happening in the temple in Jesus' day. They, they celebrated their ritual, the, the grandeur of their place of worship, and they missed the heart of God for all people. That's what the leaders of God's people had done in Jeremiah's time, too. So Jesus goes on to quote from Jeremiah 7, verse 11, referring to the temple's status as a, as a den of robbers. And that's what Jesus is teaching is still the case. These leaders, these robbers in their den, are robbing the nations of an experience of true spiritual life and vitality. And I would argue that that's a much more severe thing to be accused of than robbing them of mere shekels for the temple tax. In this massive and immaculate temple complex, Herod's temple, they were a fig tree full of leaves with no sign of fruit anywhere to be seen. And Jesus isn't cleaning things up. He's ridding the problem. Because as we'll see the next day, the fig tree that this whole thing started with is, is through. It's shriveled up. And in Jesus Christ, the temple is through as well. And that's not because the temple has no purpose, but it's because Jesus is now becoming the better temple. The temple now has a purpose to point to Jesus Christ, who as the better temple makes the glories of God accessible to all the nations. So, so how does Jesus demonstrate that he, he is a better temple? Read, read the book of, of Hebrews and see how Jesus is better. It, the book of Hebrews shows that, that Jesus is the better everything. He's, he's the better prophet, the better priest, the better law, the better temple. Hebrews 9.24 says that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, 
but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is taking the role of the temple, mediating the presence of God for us, his people. So the veil is going to tear. And eventually the very stones of the temple are going to be overturned and God's people will continue to approach him in worship. They will will continue to to come to him in adoration, to to petition him with, with confidence because Jesus is now our better temple. And he's building us up upon himself. So how did this sit with the religious leaders? As much as that's hopefully an encouragement to us, look at how they responded. They responded the same way that anyone does when when fig leaves are exposed as an outward show with no true fruit to demonstrate the love and the power and the grace of Christ working in us. In their case, as it is in any of us when that happens, we feel threatened. We get defensive, we get angry, and then one of two things happens. We allow God in that moment, when he's convicting us, when he's exposing those things, we allow God to to search our hearts and help us see where we're not bearing fruit and where we need to to repent and turn in dependence to him to bring fruit, to bring true spiritual vitality where maybe there was just dead exterior. Or... We can seek to get rid of those things, those influences that are making us uncomfortable. That's what the leaders in the temple are now committed to doing. Of course, it's going to be difficult because the crowds are amazed. They're enthralled with Jesus. It says in Luke, in his account of this, that the, the people were hanging on Jesus' words. So, so now the religious leaders are set on looking for an opening, an opportunity to bring an end to Jesus. And so we move to the third day, uh, the morning in which Jesus gets on the road again and ascends the hill to Jerusalem. It's now Tuesday on the week in which by Friday Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross. Of course, none of those who are around him know that yet. All they know is that they're making yet another entrance, a third entrance into Jerusalem, this time uh, to gain more helpful illumination. Jesus has been teaching, and he's going to continue to teach, to illuminate things, to help them understand. For those who have eyes to see and ears to hear, Jesus is going to illuminate the truth of who he is and what he's come to do. Beginning in verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses." And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? 
But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The first thing that's illuminated concerns the the fig tree in the temple, as we saw in the second day. The fig tree has withered away, all the way to its roots, clearly confirming the lesson in the parable. And using that as a launching point, Jesus transitions into some further teaching, illuminating uh, the topics of, of faith and prayer. Now, we need to be careful with this, because you may have heard these verses quoted independently, and you might have wondered, what's wrong with your prayer life when the mountains in your life don't seem to be moving in the way that you're, you're hoping them to? Or you're not getting whatever you ask in prayer, and you figure you might be doing it wrong. And so here's where we need to be careful and consider both the immediate context and the overall teaching of Scripture on prayer. And that could be a topic we could spend a lot of time on, but even in this brief glimpse at it here, I think Jesus is going to provide some helpful illumination for us. First, we need to be careful. Here's the reality. The Lord can move any mountain that you face in your life. He is able to move any mountain. He has the power to do whatever you ask, assuming that it is in line with with his holy and righteous nature. But that's not really what's in doubt here. What this is about is the content of our prayer and the heart that we bring as we come in prayer. What is Jesus teaching about? What has he been teaching about? Spiritual fruitfulness. This is what it looks like to not bear fruit. But I'm telling you, have faith in God. So God can take any situation, any circumstance, any mountain, and use it to bear spiritual fruit, fruit that brings glory to him as he shines his light through you, through me. And this isn't an easy thing always to embrace because sometimes it means changing the way we pray. And saying, God, move this mountain, but if you're not going to move it, bring glory to yourself, bring fruit through my life as I continue to look up at it, as I continue to climb it, whatever it is. And that is what says more about our hearts as we come to God in prayer. Do we seek his will or our own? Do we, do we come and say, God, here's my agenda, or do we seek the agenda that he has for us? This is what Jesus is going to do just a couple days from this point in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. And a final question for us to examine, are we in right standing with each other as we seek the Father? Again, this is about the heart. It says much more about the state of our hearts than about anything else in this passage. How are we here? Because if we think that we can persist in in bitterness and unforgiveness and anger and judgment over and against brothers and sisters in Christ and then think that God is going to bring fruitfulness to us as we seek him, We're mistaken. 
So may God help us to see on this level, on this plane, where we need to be right with each other so that he can bring true fruit in and through us here. I don't think this is explained anywhere better than than by Paul in, in Colossians 3 as he shows what it is to put on this new nature in Christ. All the different things that, that help us understand what it means to be truly fruitful as followers of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of this, in Colossians 3, verse, verse 13, he reminds us that we should be forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's where it begins. Our God has forgiven us. So, so what are our excuses? When we embrace that forgiveness that he's given us, it allows us to live out the truth of the gospel in the ways that we forgive each other, in the ways that we love each other, in the ways that we carry each other through in difficult things. That's where the transformation, the prayer of faith and true Christ-like fruitfulness begins to really show itself in us and through us. That's a powerful teaching from Jesus in the midst of this. And now he's continuing on and they, they move back into Jerusalem and into the temple area. And as they do that, I think even there we see, this is how Jesus has demonstrated his status as a better teacher. We see that. Jesus has demonstrated his status as a better teacher. It's worded as a question in your outline, but I think he's already answered it for us. And he's going to continue to. Let's see how he does that when he re-enters the temple courts. The first day he came into the temple, he just looked around. The second day he came in, and he turned things over. And now the third day he comes in, and, and he's being called upon to explain himself regarding the action that he took. His authority, namely his right to disrupt things in the temple like he did, is what's being called into, the quest, into question. And the questions are coming from this delegation of the Sanhedrin. The, the, the priests... The, the scribes and the elders. And they're coming to him and saying, explain yourself. What gives you the right to do this? We'd like to know. Because they believe that authority comes from somewhere. While Jesus is illuminating the source of his authority, those who have eyes to see are going to see it. And those who refuse it are going to miss it all the more. This is the chance. This is the chance for the religious leaders to finally get it. They've had other opportunities, and they've chosen not to get it. But, but will they get it here? At first glance, Jesus' response to their question seems like an evasion. Uh, often Jesus answers a question with a question, and it's a teaching method that the, these rabbis would often use. But this one doesn't even seem fair. They ask him a question, and then he turns right around and says, Here's my question. Answer me. If you don't, I'm not telling you. I think what's interesting is if you look at Jesus' question, in it, the answer is contained. Jesus' question is the answer. When John baptized, you remember John the Baptist, the one who came preparing the way, the very beginning of Mark's gospel. He was calling people to repent and turn to God and the one that God was sending. So look at how Jesus worded his question. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? 
Which one was it? They knew the answer. John hadn't come to call people into a system of, of religiosity to have their sins atoned for. He called them to respond directly to God in repentance for forgiveness of sins. And into that calling stepped the Son of Man, who underwent, Jesus underwent John's baptism, confirming that he was the promised one for whom John was preparing the way. Do we see that? That, that, that Jesus is the promised one. John prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus was the one who was bringing that true salvation. His baptism was clearly from heaven, ordained by God himself. The religious leaders knew this. The text says that everyone believed John to be a true prophet, that is, one who was truly sent by God. Everyone acknowledged that. And they refused it. That was it. They just refused it. The religious leaders had hearts that were hardened and eyes that were willfully blinded. They didn't call Jesus a liar, saying that his response wasn't fair. They didn't refute his claim for any of the authority that he possessed. They just weren't willing to accept that this is how God was bringing salvation. It didn't fit their mold, and so they rejected it. And they rejected him. And that's a sobering conclusion to this text. Jesus has shown them who he truly is. He's shown us who he truly is. And the conclusion, I think, is inescapable. And so as we look back over the course of these three days, these, these three entrances that Jesus makes into Jerusalem, so what? What am I going to do with this Jesus and the salvation that he brings? What am I going to do with it? How do I respond to this? How do I need to allow Jesus, the king, to be worshipped in my heart? Am I worshipping him as the king that he is? And if not, how do I begin? If you don't know the answer to that question, talk to somebody else. Ask them, how do, I, how do I make Jesus king of my life? And if they don't know, ask someone else. Eventually, you're going to find somebody who knows. Let's, let's worship him as the king that he is with our lives. How do I need him to expose the areas in my heart that need to be overhauled? The areas, perhaps, where there are leaves but no fruit so that I can be brought back to a place where I'm being fruitful for him? And how will I allow him to exert his sovereign authority over my life? And I ask that you remind us even in that, in that final question that you are our authority. God, you are sovereign over this world and over the hearts of man. Even when we don't understand what goes on in the hearts of man. And I pray that you help us, God, to come under your authority, your rulership, your kingship, because you are the king.
And we desire to see your kingdom come through us, through our lives, and ultimately to fulfillment. And we know for that to happen, God, we want to bear fruit. We want our lives to be truly spiritually fruitful so that people can see the glories of your kingdom. So help us. Help us to apply this, God. Help us to change in the ways that we need to change. And God, for the heart who isn't even sure that you're king, I pray that that heart would know through faith in Christ, the one who has come to deliver us from sin and death, and usher us into his kingdom. That's the way to step into true worship of the king. We love you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'd like to invite you to stand in closing. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, and God's people said, amen, amen. and you're dismissed.